0: Great. I think we can go ahead and get started. Um, Yeah, I mean, thanks for joining us. Um, I'm Courtney Freer. I'm a research fellow at uh, LSE's Middle East Center, and I'm very happy to have with us Vanar Haddad, um, who's Zooming in from from Singapore at 8 p.m. So thanks so much for joining us, and really excited to talk about your new book, um, Understanding Sectarianism. I think especially talking about sectarianism and kind of Coronavirus and how the interplay between those will be really fascinating. Um, so Fanar will speak for about uh, 30 minutes and then that'll leave plenty of time for Q&A after. So if you have a question, um, you can go ahead and type it into the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen and then I can address those to, uh, to Finar at the end. Um, the event will also be recorded. So uh, there'll be a podcast coming out shortly after. Uh, in case you miss anything, or if you want to listen to it again. We all have some time on our hands, so why not? Um, So just uh, before I let Fanar get started, I'll go ahead and introduce him for those who don't know him. Um, He's a senior research fellow at the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore and a non-resident senior fellow at the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C. He's lectured uh, in modern Middle Eastern politics at the University of Exeter, Queen Mary, University of London and at the National University of Singapore. And before obtaining his uh, PhD, Fanar was a research analyst at the FCO here in London, where he worked on radicalization and on North Africa. Uh, Fanar has published widely on a lot of issues related to historic and contemporary Iraq, um, and his main research interests are identity, historical memory, nationalism, communal conflict, and minority politics. And so his his other book before this one came out in 2011 uh, and was called Sectarianism in Iraq, Antagonistic Visions of Unity. And so recently his, his new book, Understanding Sectarianism has just come out with Hearst. Um, so he's going to kind of go through, uh, go through some of the, the main themes with that book. So I'll go ahead and let you get started. Thank you. Can you hear me now? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Courtney, for that introduction. Um, Good afternoon, everyone. Let me start by thanking Courtney for organizing this event. Uh, Thank you to the Middle East Center for giving me this opportunity to talk about my new book. And thank you all for uh, joining joining us today. So let me start by uh, saying a couple of words about some of the motivations behind the book. So firstly, I think the study of, a, of what remains a very promiscuously defined sectarianism continues to be highly problematic. So uh, just to give you a partial list of the many ways in which the term is understood. Now, I'm not going to go into detail about this, as I have written about the term sectarianism in the past. And I've made the case on several occasions as to why we need to abandon the term. And essentially, this comes down to the endless ways in which it was defined and understood, its absurdly catch-all qualities, and the loaded negativity associated with the term. Now, the the consequences of all this are not just um, analytical or academic in the sense of rendering the term analytically meaningless. There are also practical consequences and policy-relevant consequences to how the term is framed and understood. For example, in how the term reinforces and even justifies Orientalist views and policies towards the region. And also the way that the vocabulary of sectarianism is used within the region to silence and delegitimize political opposition. So there are policy consequences to this, but analytically I'd say the term is hopeless. And I'll give you a simple example. Uh, A lot of the literature, defines sectarianism as the institutionalization of sectarian cleavages in the division of political office, of political goods and the like. In other words, something like the uh, uh, political systems in place in Lebanon and in post 2003 Iraq. Now, if that's the definition of sectarianism, then is religious hatred, takfiri violence, things like that, are those not sectarianism? Because the Lebanese and the Iraqi political systems are not based on religious hatred or bigotry. I don't think they are. The systems in place in these countries are not mediating intercommunal tensions. They are mediating inter-elite arrangements. And this is something that's based on a good deal of competition, consensus, but above all collusion between elites who lack a genuine popular base. So here you have a simple illustration of how two separate Uh, equally relevant aspects of sectarian dynamics cannot be captured under one phrase like sectarianism, and this is a problem with every definition out there for the term, because inevitably, whatever definition you choose, it will inevitably cover only one aspect of what is an inescapably more complex and multi dimensional issue. So, My first motivation, I suppose, is to try to address this problem here. A second motivation behind the book is to try to demystify and de-fetishize the subject by relocating the study of sectarian dynamics within the broader social sciences, where it belongs. We have several relevant bodies of literature that have been largely ignored in studies of sectarian identity and sectarian relations. And I think this does come down to the fetishization of the subject, whereby sectarian identity in the Middle East becomes somehow different, almost a sort of a sui generis category. So in my book, I treat sectarian identity as another form of mass group identity. I treat sectarian relations as another form of intergroup relations. And in doing so, I rely on identity theory, the literature on nationalism, and critical race theory. And the book also benefits from the literature on class, ethnicity, and international relations as well. The other motivation behind the book is to try to move the debates um, beyond some of the binaries that have, uh, excuse me, this is the first time I do this screen sharing. Let me get the other slide up. So the other motivation is to try to move the debate about sectarian identity beyond some of these uh, uh, entirely unrealistic, in my mind, uh, binaries that have dominated discussions of sectarian relations. Now, in many ways, the problem here is the same as the problem with the term sectarianism. These dichotomies simply cannot, they're not fit for purpose. They cannot reflect the inherent multidimensionality, fluidity and ambiguity of sectarian dynamics. So for example, if we take uh, the issue of unity and division, thinking of Sunni-Shi'a relations in terms of unity and division obscures the far more common reality of irrelevance. As I discuss in the book, when you look at the spread of history, you find that Sunni-Shi'a relations are characterized far more by banality than by active ecumenism or division. In other words, Sunnis and Shi'as are far more likely to interact as people who happen to be Sunni and Shi'a, rather than as avatars of their sectarian identities. More importantly on this point, rather than a zero-sum game, Sunni-Shi'a relations have built in within them both centrifugal and centripetal qualities. Fundamentally, sectarian relations are marked by an inner dialectic, an inner tension between unity and division. It's not a question of either or. It's an inner inner dialectic between religious oneness on the one hand and sect specificity on the other. Now this for me is a function of another overlooked fact, namely that sectarian identities are by definition, subsidiary identities to larger religious categories and in some cases, larger national categories. This makes Sunni Shia tensions, when they arise, highly elastic and highly resistant to definitive breaks, be it in a religious sense or in a national sense, even if those tensions were to reach the point of civil war. This is what makes uh, uh, the likes of ISIS so exceptional in the history of uh, sectarian relations. Uh, Exceptional though not unprecedented, there are precedents, unfortunately. Now, what I try to do in the book is try to go beyond just admiring the problem and uh, try to propose a solution. And what I propose in the book is that we disentangle ourselves from the ism and turn to the root, namely sectarian identity. Because however you choose to define sectarianism, it is ultimately related to and rooted in sectarian identity, whether in an endogenous way or an exogenous way, the heart of the subject is sectarian identity. How it's imagined, how it's utilized, how it's framed, how it's institutionalized and so forth. So that should be our starting point. To that end, chapters three and four outline a conceptual framework that I hope will allow us to better understand sectarian identity and sectarian relations. And to visualize the model, it looks something like this. Basically, the proposed model argues that rather than being any one thing, sectarian identity is best understood as simultaneously operating on four overlapping, interdependent, and mutually dialogical levels. There is a doctrinal dimension. In other words, sectarian identity in relation to a set of religious truths. There is a subnational dimension, This is in relation to hierarchies of power and local dynamics within a given national setting. There is a national dimension. This concerns nationalism and the nation state, its identity, its ownership, its resources, and so forth, and the way in which sectarian identity and national identity interact. And finally, there's a transnational dimension where sectarian identity offers a prism for the framing of international relations, transnational solidarities, and geostrategic competition. So when viewed this way, sectarian identity is no longer any one thing, it becomes the sum of its parts. So these four dimensions, they're not separate concepts, rather they are four parts of the same thing, sectarian identity. Uh, Rather than separate concepts, they're overlapping, they're in constant dialogue with each other, and they constantly are shaping each other. So it's not a question of which dimension is, is, is in play, it's how these four dimensions interact, which is more relevant to a given context, and so forth. Now, to my mind, the complexity of sectarian identity mandates a model like this one. By thinking about the multiple dimensions in which sectarian identity operates, we can better identify what specific aspect of sectarian dynamics is relevant to a given context without being oblivious to the bigger picture. Because the stakes differ from across these these dimensions. The way that sectarian othering is constructed differs from across these dimensions. And the parameters of sectarian competition differ across these dimensions. So it's important to get the context right. Also thinking about the the multiple dimensions, I think also allows us to better identify the correct tools and bodies of literature for a given context. So for example, when I'm working on the subnational dimension in the book, uh, I relied on and benefited from critical race theory. But critical race theory has absolutely nothing to tell us about sectarian dynamics at the transnational dimension. Where something like IR theory might be more useful, and in turn, IR theory tells us nothing about sectarian dynamics at the doctrinal dimension and so forth. So we need that conceptual agility when dealing with something as multi-dimensional as this subject. If nothing else, I think that this sort of approach can help us avoid analytical and policy misdirection by getting by fine-tuning the the, the contextualization of sectarian dynamics. So I'll give you an obvious illustration here. And that is uh, uh, one that relates to um, assumptions regarding the role of faith and beliefs in sectarian dynamics. We often see recommendations and initiatives revolving around interfaith dialogue and religious ecumenism and things like that as solutions to what are in fact political, not doctrinal problems. And here for me, the classic example is the complete irrelevance of the Amman message of 2005 and the Mecca declaration of 2006. Both expressions of ecumenism aimed at stemming conflict in Iraq at the time, but both were completely irrelevant to what was going on and had zero effect. Uh, And I think one of the problems is the lack of context here. Another thing I think is, is particularly important is that by identifying these dimensions, we can better illuminate aspects of sectarian identity that are all too easily overlooked. For example, as you can see at the national and the subnational level, sectarian cleavages often interact with other factors, such as regionalism, tribalism, and perhaps most pertinently, I think, with class divides. In the countries surveyed in the book and also elsewhere in the world, we find that sectarian prejudice and questions of inclusion and exclusion are often based on considerations of class, whereby sectarian prejudice effectively conflates a target group, a target sect coded group with a denigrated conception of the poor, the riffraff, so to speak, the excluded. We see this intersection of class prejudice and sectarian prejudice the world over. We see it in, for example, how anti-Catholic uh, uh, prejudice is sometimes constructed in places like Scotland. We see it in derogatory terms like in Taula in Lebanon or shurugi in, in uh, Iraq. In all these cases and more, what we see is a normative conception of what passes from mainstream acceptability and respectability being used to include and exclude in a way that combines class prejudice and sectarian prejudice. Uh, I found a very blunt illustration of this in one of Mark Owen Jones's essays, where he looks at a ethnography of Bahrain from 1984. Um, And the ethnography describes, and here I'm quoting, it frames the Baharness of the Shia as dirty, revolutionary, uncivilized, animalistic, and inbred, whilst the Bahraini represents the civilized Sunni, end quote. So again, it's that issue of respectability uh, uh, and acceptability. Um, And it also points to the importance of, uh, of really understanding these local dynamics that are specific to a given context. It's not always a cosmic struggle between two regional hegemons. It's not always about two incompatible doctrines it's not always about an an imperial intrusion. And even when it is any of those things, it's important to understand these local dynamics so that we can understand how something like an imperial intrusion interacts with and shapes these local dynamics and vice versa. Now, all of this has some important implications for some of the most cherished yet faulty assumptions in the field. So for example, the misplaced idea that secularism or nationalism are antidotes to sectarian tensions becomes redundant when we highlight the fact that there are other dimensions to sectarian identity where sectarian cleavages can be created and reproduced through secular and national frames. And I think Ba'athist Iraq and Ba'athist Syria are great examples of that. Or more broadly, at the national dimension, we often see sectarian prejudice often being based on narratives of national authenticity and questions of national loyalty. So it's not an issue that's gonna be solved by nationalism or secularism. So that's the conceptual heart of the book, this model. So chapters one and two survey the literature, they outline at least what I think is wrong with the field and they explain why such a model is needed. Chapters three and four outline the model and in doing so, I dip into some medieval history, but more so early modern history to illustrate the model's relevance and utility. And of course, I also show its applicability to modern contexts, particularly uh, Lebanon, Bahrain, Syria and Iraq. Now, from there, I initially wanted to provide a sketch or an overview of Sunni-Shia relations, both geographically and historically, sort of, what, sort of like what Lawrence Lewer has uh, done so well in her new book. But instead, I ended up dedicating the last three chapters to firstly examining the role of demographics on sectarian dynamics. And secondly, to explaining the post 2003 environment, basically looking at what Daniel Byman labeled uh, the sectarian wave and how, in my opinion, at least how that wave has crested. Now, the reason for my focus on demographics is that I think it's a very overlooked factor in sectarian relations. There is a tendency to assume a false equivalence in Sunni-Shia relations as if Sunnis and Shi'as were two sides of the same coin, and what I argue in the book is that this is not the case, and one of the reasons for this is the immense demographic imbalance, the implications of which have been completely overlooked. The spectrum that constitutes Sunni Islam covers roughly 80% of Muslims worldwide, whilst Shi'ism barely exceeds an estimated 15% of global Islam. So it's a massive discrepancy. If we zoom into the Arab world, the imbalance becomes even greater. So by my estimates, and I'll find I this in the book, uh, Shi'as barely exceed 11% of the populations of the Arabic Arab, speaking countries. And that's even including Yemen's Zaidi population. In addition to that, not only are Shias a small minority in the Arab world, they are geographically very concentrated. Hence, they're quite invisible and somewhat exotic to the vast majority of Arabs. In fact, by my calculations, just under 60% of Arab Shias are Iraqi. Just under 60% of Arab Shiism is concentrated in Iraq. One of the implications of this is that Sunni Islam's normative role in how uh, global Islam is imagined and indeed how the Arab world is imagined can end up artificially minoritizing Shia populations in national settings where they nevertheless constitute a majority or a plurality with Bahrain and pre-2003 Iraq being prime examples. Another implication of the demographic imbalance and its attendant power dynamics is that sect centricity is far more of a constant in uh, Shia political activism uh, than its Sunni counterpart, because Shia identity is a far more elaborated concept than its Sunni counterpart. More broadly, what I argue in the book is that the demographic imbalance provides the backdrop for a minoritarian and a majoritarian outlook amongst Shia centric and Sunni centric actors, respectively. And I argue that these are especially relevant and evident in how political interests are pursued, in how sectarian polemics are formulated, and in how sectarian ecumenism is approached. Briefly, the utility of sectarian categories is not identical across the board. So to give you an example, the demographic imbalance means that Iran's pan-Islamist pretensions prevent it from sponsoring an openly anti-Sunni stance. So what it does is it vilifies Wahhabis uh, and frames them as tools of Zionism seeking to divide Sunnis and Shi'as and so forth, but it cannot excommunicate Sunnis wholesale, nor can it drop the lip service to Sunni-Shi'a unity. Whereas doctrinal anti shiaism in a place like Saudi Arabia, for example, can very easily reject Shi'as in total, with little consequence. Now here to preempt any misunderstanding, it's important to remember that Iranian uh, aggression, Iranian expansionism, the network of proxies that are built to project Iranian power, uh, these are not the same as anti sunnism particularly in a doctrinal sense. And to preempt another uh, uh, misunderstanding, what I'm saying is not that Shi'ism, much less the Iranian state, are inherently more, more, more tolerant. Uh, I mean, if you're under any illusions, just look at the lot of Baha'ism and Baha'is in in Iran to get a clearer picture on that. What I'm talking about is not about tolerance. It's a function of demographics and power relations in a modern context that places a premium on the idea of Islamic unity in a normatively Sunni-inflected global Islam. And the same point repeats itself when we compare anti-Sunnism and anti-Shiism. It is far easier for anti shiism to openly reject Shias in an absolute form. Anti-Sunnism on the other hand, is far more likely to leave a little bit of room for ambiguity, for deniability. And again, there's a simple reason for this. And it's not about tolerance. If Shia actors want Shiaism to be recognized as part of modern conceptions of global Islam, they will need the validation of some degree of Sunni acceptance. The reverse does not hold. To put it simply, a Sunni pan-Islamist outlook or pan-Islamic outlook can do without Shi'as. A Shi'a pan-Islamic outlook cannot turn its back on Sunnis, not completely. In fact, the examples we have of absolute rejection of Sunnism are precisely by people who reject the idea of Muslim unity if it were to come at what they believe is doctrinal purity people like uh, London-based Yasser al-Habib, who value the excellence of an embattled minority, to use Hamid Inayat's phrase, over the idea of Muslim unity or Sunni-Shi'a unity, uh, because they're not willing to compromise on what they regard as doctrinal purity. Now, of course, there are exceptions, but the case material is a bit too great to go into here, but more than happy to get into this in the uh, discussion. But what I said about anti-Synism and anti-Shi'ism the, applies to the inverse as well. It also applies to how ecumenism or takrib is approached. Shi'a actors often see takrib as a vehicle with which to secure Sunni acceptance of Shi'ism, while Sunni actors often see takrib as a vehicle with which to secure the dilution of certain Shi'a practices that they deem offensive. And as Elvira Corbos has argued in this regard, this reflects the reality that Shia actors lack the power to exclude Sunnis from conceptions of Islamic unity. And interestingly, Meyer Litvak finds the very same with regards to Taqrib initiatives in the Ottoman era. Shia actors seeking Sunni approval, but Sunni, Sunni actors not needing Shia approval. I mean, look, it's not for nothing that we remember Al-Azhar's recognition of Shi'ism in 1959 as the ecumenical moment of choice, rather than, say, a Shia seminary recognizing Sunnism. Now it's a pity that I only have 30 minutes because um, I'm almost out of time, uh, and I really wanted to discuss the post-2003 era, um, which is the subject of the book's final two chapters. I'll just say a few words on this and I'll end there. Uh, Historically, periods of extreme sectarian polarization almost always uh, are linked to political changes that altered or threatened the balance of power between sect-centric actors. And there are examples of this from the medieval period, from the early modern uh, period, uh, right down to uh, modern, modern examples like 1979 and 2003. Now, 2003 was an especially acute episode. It was to use William Sewell's phrase, a historical disruption. Sewell defines a historical disruption as an event that is transformative of broader social structures in ways that cannot be contained through reference to the previous social order. So it's something of a big bang uh, uh, event in that It creates a new sociopolitical reality by redrawing the relations of power and altering the rules of the game. Now, I think it's a fairly straightforward argument to say that this applies to 2003, but why was 2003 sect coded? Not every historical disruption needs to be sect coded, right? Well, the answer to that lies in fairly recent pre-2003 Iraqi and regional history. That meant that the raw materials of 2003 were inherently going to uh, affect sectarian dynamics. So the American invasion of Iraq empowered Shia-centric actors. It disturbed the balance of power between sect-centric actors, not just in Iraq, of course. This has regional extensions in the form of the links between Iran and a lot of uh, the newly empowered political elite, in the form of uh, Iranian-American competition in Iraq, and of course, in the form of regional threat perception to what was going on, as most famously articulated by King Abdullah, who warned of a Shia crescent as early as 2004. The chaos that followed, the insecurity that followed the American invasion of Iraq only served to deepen and incentivize the reliance on sectarian categories and opened Uh, uh, the door wide open for regional interference, thereby accelerating the regionalization of what was going on. Now, the years after 2003, in my opinion, set the stage for how sectarian dynamics were gonna pan out after 2011. The eight years separating 2003 from uh, 2011 saw the creation, the emergence of a regional narrative of sectarian conflict and sectarian victimhood, in which sectarian dynamics in a given national setting uh, were seen as part of a larger transnational contest. And so come 2011, the vocabulary of sectarian conflict was still very salient which naturally increases the utility of sectarian categories in how some regimes sought to confront the Arab uprisings, and it also influenced how people perceived the unfolding upheaval. Now, I think that what makes um, these years, this period, 2003 to 2011 and onwards, what makes it stand out is the importance of the transnational dimension in blurring the lines between the national, the transnational, the doctrinal, and the geopolitical. And the way that this period saw the superimposition of geopolitics onto sectarian identity, in the process, sect-coding geopolitics and geopolitically coding sectarian identities. Now compare that with previous episodes from the 20th century, with the exception of 1979. Compare it with, for example, the uprising in Bahrain in the 90s, or the uprising in Iraq in 1991 or the uprising in Syria in the 1980s all sect coded events that are pivotal to those countries histories but that failed to kick off a sectarian wave they lacked that trans- transnational dimension and i think this is what really sets the 21st century upheaval apart As important as the transnational aspect is, I think it's also important to point out that the sectarian wave did not travel in one direction, there were ebbs and flows, nor was it felt in the same way or to the same extent across the region. The demographic makeup of a given national setting, the history of sectarian relations in a given context, and the cohesiveness and integrative capacity of state institutions all went a long way towards determining how the heightened relevance of sectarian categories would be reflected in individual national settings. Now, thankfully, uh, that heightened relevance has significantly declined in recent years. The years after 2003 and again after 2011 were exceptional in my opinion, as far as sectarian relations are concerned. And they created exceptional circumstances such as an artificially clear-cut demarcation between Sunni and Shia camps that concealed the more ambiguous reality of Sunni-Shia relations. I think this was a function of the exceptional times that have passed. And it's on this note that the book ends on how the relevance of sectarian categories has actually diminished in recent years and what we can learn from that. And there are many variables underpinning this process. But uh, in this last 10 seconds I've got, I'll I'll mention two variables that really jumped out at me. One is the waxing of power relations. In other words, a reduction or a restriction of what is politically up for grabs uh, and what is open to to, uh, wholesale political contestation. So after 2003, there were emergent hierarchies of power that were viciously contested. The more these waxed, the smaller the room for political contestation and the less that was perceived to be politically up for grabs. A second variable is normalization. Uh, Normalization in the sense of the waxing of power relations, yes, but also in the sense that, look, it's been 17 years. A lot of what was seen as threatening, controversial, contentious, frightening, whatever, uh, in 2003 or 2005 or 2011 for that matter, is no longer so today as a result of generational shifts, as a result of normalization, as a a result of uh, uh, um, new frames of political contestation that emerged and that eclipsed uh, uh, what was uh, uh, the the dominant, sort of master cleavage, if you like, of sectarian conflict. I'm almost certain I have not done the book uh, uh, justice, so please don't hold this presentation against the book. Uh, But I've been told I'm not allowed to go over 30 minutes. So Courtney, I'll hand over to you. And thank you everyone for your attention.
0: Thank you so much. That was fascinating. You covered quite a lot of uh, ground in a very short amount of time. So thanks for that. And I think it's really helpful thinking about these four different levels that you talk about, the doctrinal, subnational, national, and transnational, and thinking about, you know, the applicability of that even to, to the term of Islamism, which is as you, uh, the phrase that you use as promiscuously defined, um, you know, applies there as well. Um, and I guess, so we have a series of questions. Um, again, if you have a question, you can type it into the Q&A at the bottom of the screen. Um, one question that, that my colleague uh, Jess is asking that that I was wondering about as well is, I mean, you we've talked a lot about the term sectarianism and how, you know, wh- whether it is useful as, as an analytical category, considering that there are so many types of sectarianism, um, but yet we still tend to use the, the term. So, I mean, is it a useless term? How do we, what can we replace it with something or do we modify it as kind of different types of sectarianism? Um, Yeah. What what do we do with that, I guess?
1: Okay. uh, I didn't go too much into detail on this on this question, because I, as I said, I've written about this elsewhere, Um, but I do elaborate uh, the argument that I made a few years ago uh, in the book. And what I argue then and now is that the term needs to be jettisoned because I cannot think of a single context or a single uh, case that requires or mandates its usage. Right. So. and the problem is because as, as I uh, mentioned in that example of sort of how do we combine political systems sort of an institutional understanding of sectarianism with a doctrinal uh, understanding that focuses on tech violence and the like. How do you combine that under one heading? Well, the answer is you can't. Uh, the thing is we're talking about something that is so multidimensional. Where, as I said, we're talking essentially about the many manifestations and uses Uh, and manipulations of sectarian identity. Uh, And there's so much um, that that needs to be covered that it cannot be encompassed in one word. So I do in the book outline sort of an alternate lexical framework, if you like. Uh, And as I said, jettison the phrase, there is that alternate lexical framework which I'm used to using, I'm not sure it will catch on and then shift the analytical focus to sectarian identity rather than whatever the hell sectarianism is supposed to mean
0: okay right, yeah no, that makes sense um a somewhat related question um asking so considering the very different contexts where sectarianism or sectarianization takes place um how can we as academics agree to a common framework um considering the the crucial place that con uh, the context the crucial role that context plays and and also how can we explain this phenomenon to a wider audience without being too simplistic?
1: Um, I mean, I, I don't think there's a problem for us to, to try to analyze these things. It does become problematic when we keep getting bogged down in what sectarianism is or isn't, um, because it's as I said, it's inevitably going to cover just one aspect of what is a multidimensional process. So, for example, the the, the term sectarianization you mentioned uh, in in the question, I don't think that's that's something we can uh, that that's that's that we cannot sort of analyze uh, in terms of sort of how sectarian identities gain political relevance, or how they're institutionalized, or how uh, uh, doctrinal sectarian uh, um, uh, polemics gain uh, political relevance. And it's something that I hope I've gone through in the book. I mean, I certainly try to. And one of the examples I use, for example, again, is how these various dimensions interact with each other. How after two thousand and three, religious hate preachers, who've always been there, it's not like they they emerged in two thousand and three or two thousand and eleven. They've always been there, and they always will be there. Suddenly, they became household names, like Adnan Al Arour and Yasser Al Habib and and all kinds of of, of these th- these characters suddenly gained an audience uh, commensurate with the rising political relevance of sectarian identity um w- as that receded these people are, are are nowhere near the the online superstars that they briefly became um so i don't again if we just avoid getting bogged down in this this analytical black hole that is this bloody phrase sectarianism uh, there's actually so much we can do uh, by analyzing the, all the various different million and one things that are in, uh, that are encapsulated in that phrase.
0: Yeah, I know that makes sense. Um, so I guess there are two related questions to the Iraqi context. Um, so one of them is, in terms of, of Iraq, uh, do you not think that sectarianism has taken a back seat um, and that there's been a larger focus on the elite in Iraq? Um, and then, relatedly, what factors are the most significant in the relationship between Iraqi and Iranian Shia community, communities?
1: Oh, that second one is a bit tough. Um, let me take the first one first. So the first one, actually, the, the, the final chapter of the book uh, really sort of uh, delves into this issue, and it's something I've written about elsewhere in the past, about uh, the diminishing, in the title of the paper a few years ago, was the diminishing relevance of sectarian identity, and I think absolutely, it's taken a backseat. Um, and it's and in the book, I sort of give provide an analysis of how sort of and why sectarian categories gained the relevance that they did after 2003, and how they came to be intertwined with threat perception, how they came to be intertwined with with how people perceived their political fortunes, how they even came to be intertwined with physical safety, uh, in the bad old days of 0607. Um, And then there are, I mean, there are reasons how and how and why that sort of uh, diminishes, Um, one of which is the normalization of the post-2003 state, one of which is uh, the sort of uh, resolution of these these broad broad brush foundational issues as to, you know, Shia rule and things like that. Now, again, with normalization, the stabilization of the state, with the generational shifts that have happened in Iraq. for example, to take the concept of Shi'a rule, it's no longer an emotive issue with a young generation who've known no other reality. Uh, Shi'a rule is all they've known and it's been an abject failure. Um, so it's no longer a, a contested issue the way it was. And in short, yes, absolutely. I think for some years now, this is I, I date it to, to 2014, 2015, thereabouts. Uh, I think that the sectarian divide lost or or. or the, uh, the sectarian divide lost its social divisiveness, even if it is still used in the apportionment of uh, or on in, in elite bargaining. Uh, I think it's lost its societal echo that it did have in the earlier post 2003 years. And I think as, as many of, of my colleagues have said, and as I've said, the, the, the more pertinent sort of cleavages between elites and, and uh, the Iraqi people, very few of whom have benefited from this, uh, from this political order. Um, Iraqi Shias and Iranian Shias. Uh, I mean, look, there's, there's a lot tying Iraqi Shias and Iranian Shias. There is a uh, section in the book about this. Um, there's no denying, I mean, a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, uh, Shias I've spoken to sometimes get defensive about this and seek to deny any and all linkages. This is nonsense. There's, there's plenty uh, uh, linking Iraqi and Iranian Shias. There's institutional links, Uh, There are uh, family links, there's economic links, there's cultural links, these are there. However, this, I think, is very easily inflated in some analyses that sort of presume or wonder whether Iraqi Shias are basically there for Iran's bidding. I think, particularly in in recent events in Iraq, it's become ever more clear uh, just how wrong that that sort of an assumption is. Um, So there are links, yes. But that does not necessarily, necessarily translate into affinity, much less into loyalty.
0: Interesting. And I guess, I mean, a related question about kind of uh, this turning point you talk about in Iraq in 2014 when sectarian identity became, kind of took a backseat to other types of identity. I mean, would you say that's the case? I mean, in other, pla- other, other country cases that you looked at? Or is that particular yeah. to the Iraqi case?
1: I mean, not, not necessarily 2014, but I think yes, in recent years, uh, and I think a very illustrative example of this is how the Syrian conflict is framed in regional discourse, um, where sort of the instrumentalization of sectarian categories in how uh, uh, the Syrian tragedy was, was uh, framed and how policy was framed to it, uh, I think was very reliant on sectarian categories uh, in an earlier period, but in recent years, again from about in the Syrian case, I'd say from about 2015, um, that's no longer the case. I mean, look at look at who, who who's being the, the 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 being demonized today. For example, uh, the hate figure of of choice for the likes of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates is just as likely to be Turkey and Qatar as it is to be Iran. Whereas in earlier periods, there was that artificial Uh, artificially created clear-cut demarcation between Sunni camps and Shia camps. This, I think, no longer holds water. Certainly in Iraq, I think the Islamic State uh, phenomenon had a a big impact in that regard, Uh, not just in how it impacted policymakers, but also in its intra-Sunni divisiveness within Iraq. Uh, I think that's something that's often overlooked.
0: No that makes a lot of sense, and it seems more and more, as you mentioned that the antidote is that's that's posed is uh, secular nationalism and so this idea that your your identity has to do much more with the state itself and is articulated by state leaders rather than by kind of other other uh, identity markers, I suppose. Um, And I mean, you mentioned the Gulf. So this is another question that is basically related to how leadership across the Gulf, especially Saudi, the Emirates and Iran, um, view sectarian identity, uh, for instance, instrumentally for power, intrinsically for identity, uh, not at all. And in addition, is this conscious or subconscious view of sectarian identity by this political leadership? So especially in uh, Saudi, the Emirates and Iran again.
1: I mean, I think it varies according to context. Uh, I mean, think of it this way: How how important was sectarian identity in Saudi policy, say, in the uh, early and mid '90s, when relations with Iran were were, were fairly benign? Uh, yet, how important were they uh, in sort of after 2003, again, because relations deteriorated? Now, so so I mean, context plays a role here. The one thing I think that differentiates Saudi Arabia from, from the other countries that I, that I, that I or, or from the countries that I looked at in the book, in Saudi Arabia, there's a, there's a pronounced uh, doctrinal dimension to sectarian othering that's not necessarily found in places like Syria and uh, Iraq and Lebanon, for example. I mean, Lebanon, all three of those uh, went through sect-coded civil wars. But these civil wars were not exactly about doctrine. It wasn't about establishing some kind of a religious orthodoxy. this wasn't what this was about. Whereas in the Saudi case, there is that element. I'm not saying it's the only element, but there is that doctrinal aspect that is uh, missing, or at least it is weaker, not as central as is the case in other uh, uh, contexts. And even on that point, I mean, with the the new Saudi Arabia, with MBS and and that, there is a conscious sort of effort to roll this back. Uh, that sort of doctrinal uh, element, the acceptability with which that doctrinal element is aired, there are sort of attempts to roll that back. Where that goes, I don't know. One thing that that is worth pointing out, so if they're successful in rolling this back uh, or pushing back against it, it would go a long way towards de-securitizing sectarian plurality within Saudi Arabia uh, and sort of calming sectarian tensions within Saudi Arabia, without necessarily uh, impacting on relations with Iran. So you can still have your antagonistic relation with Iran uh, without necessarily conflating it with the sunni Shiite divide. And I think after 2003, there was a very deliberate uh, push to conflate uh, the Sunni-Shi'i divide with the Arab-Iranian divide to the greatest extent possible. Whereas in recent years, that has not been the case.
0: I yeah, know, and you're right, there's a huge division, kind of intra-Sunni division emerging more and more I guess uh, in, in the Gulf specifically. Um,
1: and also Courtney, there's, a, there's an intra shia division. So, so by not pushing that conflation, I think the strategy might be, whether it succeeds or not, I don't know, but it might be that rather than conflating uh, 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 the sunni shia divide with the Arab Iranian divide, why not try to isolate Iran and its Arab allies from the rest of Arab Shiism I think that was the calculation for example in the uh, Iraqi Saudi rapprochement around 2016-17 whatever it was
0: oh my God, that makes sense um I guess to go back a bit to to uh, the, the term sectarianism um, there's a couple of questions that are related, um, and one we we mentioned the the idea of sectarianization. Um, so, so this question is: To what extent do you differentiate between sectarian the concept of sectarianism and the concept of sectarianization introduced uh, by Hashemi and Postel um, in their in their volume called the Sectarianization? Um, and then a- another another question is related um asking why do you think the term sectarianism has ended up meaning everything that's linked to sex, sex or sectarian identity um why do you think observers both local and outside have understood all aspects of the sectarian dynamic within the framework of just a single term uh Sorry,
1: so Ian, on the first sectarianization and uh, sectarianism uh, how different are the two subject uh, concepts. Look, sectarianism for me, is, 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 is it's hopeless. It's a, its dead in the water. I have zero time for that. I've been, I've just, what, we've been talking for what, 50 minutes now? I've never once needed to use the term sectarianism unless I'm saying, you know, don't use the term. Uh, there, there, there's other much more uh, uh, precise ways of referring to specific aspects of sectarian dynamics. Sectarianization, um, it's not a term I use much, but I mean, I, I don't have a problem with the term at all. Right? I mean, it comes up in my work every now and then, and I contributed to Hashimi and uh, Postel's book, of course. Um, at the very least, sectarianization has the, has the merit of, uh, at least we can say it's, it's an action, it's a process, right? Um, it's something that's initiated and that, that you know, runs its course. So whether it's from above or from below, you could talk, you could talk about sectarianization from above or from below, sectarianization by, by local actors or by imperial powers, et cetera. Whereby again, for me at least the way I understand it, it comes down to the uh, uh, um, inflation of the political relevance and salience of sectarian categories. So it has a lot more merit than what well, sectarianism just has zero merit um what was the second question why is sectarianism uh how did it take this catchall I honestly don't know to be honest with you. i really i really don't know how uh this phrase i think maybe maybe perhaps um given the spike in, in the heightened interest in sectarianism after 2003 particularly uh, so much was going on and the language that we've inherited from previous uh, uh decades is the language of sectarianism, which has always been problematic. Because for one thing, it emerges out of a Western context that is a very poor fit for an Islamic context. Sectarianism, as understood with, with regards to, the, to, uh, to, to Christian denominations, is uh, a very imperfect. Michael Cook has written about this. Other people have written about it. I touch upon it in the book, is an ill fit for, for, the, uh, uh, for Islamic societies. Um, But I think it might just be a case, at least by the time of 2003, it might just be a case of the path of least resistance. This was the dominant uh, uh, prism when talking about uh, 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 um, religious denominations, and so it took a life of its own. But I think it would be interesting to learn a bit more, I think Mark Farha has written about this, uh, about how the term was actually first translated into Arabic, and again, it's directly copied, and it's in the nineteenth, the late nineteenth century, uh, copied, I believe, from 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 the French, um, and it transposes an imperfect, so it's an imperfect fit. The two contexts it transposes a Western context and a Christian context onto uh, Islamic societies.
0: Well, that makes sense. Yeah, there, I'm just looking. There was a question here about the the Arabic uh, translation of the term as well. I'm just trying to find it. Uh... Here, but um, yeah, because that is the term that I suppose is still still used. Uh, Taifa is still kind of what's what's used. But I guess uh, related to kind of the linguistic point I, uh, again, there's another question um, from a, actually a secondary school teacher who teaches about kind of Sunni Shia similarities and differences, and so it's asking, you know, kind of d- despite uh, aside from the doctrinal differences, I mean, what else? What else does she need to inform our students other than than that? I mean, what else? How else do you describe the differences between the two groups?
1: So often, that's that's I mean that that's sort of the question that I'm uh, really interested in, and, and the book really uh, explores. Uh, and this is where these multiple dimensions come in. So the doctrinal element is obviously there; it exists, but the assumption that. Uh, The way that Sunnis and Shias differentiate each other, the way that sectarian prejudice works, the way that sectarian exclusion discrimination work is all down to this, is actually a faulty assumption. In fact, it's seldom about that, particularly when you look at places like Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Bahrain. Um, So one of the ways in which uh, um, these differentiations are are sort of uh, constructed is, as I said in the presentation, around questions of national authenticity. Uh, be it you know, accusing sect A or B of being ethnically different or of being um, insufficiently authentic in, in national terms. Um, there's also a question of perceptions of uh, discriminatory policies. Um, so if a, if a population s- feels that the state favors sect A over sect B, I mean, this is the story of uh, places like uh, uh, modern Iraq and Syria, of course, it's, it's irrelevant, Bahrain as well, uh, um, it's a relevant issue. That is not necessarily on a, on a doc, doctrinal basis. Um, it's state policies being formulated on, along other lines uh, of contestation relating to the nation state primarily. I think that the, the role of the nation state, the resources, uh, uh, the distribution of, of political and economic goods, state policy, how uh, the citizenry is, is treated, how they're differentiated by state policy, I think is absolutely crucial. And this takes us to the, I mean, this is, inextricably linked uh, with colonialism in the sense that the the modern nation state emerged in a context and in in relation to Western colonialism and how these things were constructed. uh, I think that is a far more common uh, frame for sectarian uh, competition than the doctrinal element.
0: No, and and I guess also the demographic that you mentioned as well, like this majoritarian versus minoritarian um, vision of Islam or or identity, I suppose. Um, Another question is um, whether there's a, a you see a peaceful and wartime distinction of sectarian identity. So is there one context, whether conflict or or outside of conflict, in which sectarian identity behaves differently or looks different
1: between war and peace. War and peace, yeah. Well, I mean, again, the, the, we have a good example in the post two thousand and three years, I suppose, where in in contexts of sect coded violence and sect coded war, and they are very rare these these instances. Um, sectarian identity comes to be intertwined with threat perception, which is extremely socially divisive. And, and, and Baghdad went through this quite uh, quite uh, profoundly in two thousand and six from two thousand and five to two thousand and eight, um, where, where where social social relations essentially. Uh, uh, ruptured in in these uh, by by sort by by the intertwinement of threat perception with sectarian categories um, in times of conflict of course the negative elements of sectarian dynamics uh, sectarian relations come to the fore in in times of conflict uh, the points of difference become more more sort of uh, visible uh, whereas in times of peace the commonalities uh, take precedence and and sort of uh, uh, dominate people's perceptions of sectarian Uh, Again, this comes back to what I mentioned in the uh, presentation about the unity division dialectic. There's enough points of convergence and enough points of difference within sectarian relations to formulate uh, uh, sort of uh, um, an argument of division and an argument of unity.
0: Great. Um, I have a question related to the Syrian context um, here. Um, uh, so the question about the perceived inherent cooperation and sympathy between Shias and Alawites as depicted by Sunni opposition figures in Syria. So with all the PMU and Shia militia, as well as the Iranian Republican guards fighting alongside Assad, do you view this in a sectarian light or do you think this is purely a geopolitical issue?
1: There was uh, a related,
0: so oh, sorry. There was a related question ahead. about kind of the geopolitical piece. Uh, go ahead, you finish no, that. No, that's basically like broader, more broadly. I mean, how much is sectarian division uh, instrumentalized for geopolitical means.
1: Okay, the, the, it's definitely sort of uh, uh, rather than sort of an inbuilt affinity. I think it's it's most it's most certainly a geopolitical issue and, and a question of political strategy. I mean, it's often forgotten that, for example, the Assad regime was against Hezbollah in, in Hezbollah's early early years uh, in the early to mid eighties. Um, so the idea of sort of a natural affinity between. Shiaism and Alawism uh, flies in the face of, of the historical record in how uh, Alawism was viewed by by uh, Shiism for much of the 20th century and previously, um, and also in terms of just political relations as well. I mean, the alliance between Iran and and Syria, uh, the the strategic relations between the two, were not preordained. Um, having said that, I think it would it would be quite reductionist for us to completely dismiss the sectarian angle, even if it is, and this links to the second question, even if it's just in an instrumental sense. I mean, uh, the language of sectarian solidarity, the language of sectarian symbolism, defending the shrines, for example, uh, goes a long way in terms of mobilization, uh, mobilization of manpower and deployment. You need all of this for the, for power projection and for putting meat on the strategic alliance. Um, so it's not completely irrelevant. And it's also finally important to remember That, even something that's instrumentalized for political or geostrategic uh, uh, purposes, we should never sort of underestimate the normative impact that that can have with time. Um, So, even if it's a reality created by political elites, it doesn't make it any less real, even if they're the ones who created it. And sometimes this will have a sort of have some changes on uh, or will have an impact on sectarian relations broadly.
0: Um, fascinating, thank you. And then I have a question, um, basically going back to the the idea of of the term sectarianism and taifiya. And so I guess nowadays in some of the chants in Lebanese protests it's taura al taifiya. And so do you think there's a, a better term that can be used um, by the people protesting or is it is that term kind of valid in context? I mean, what else could we really use, I suppose, whether in Arabic or in English?
1: In Arabic, of course, it's a bit more complicated because tafia is not just multi-meaning and meaningless. Uh, it's also the feminine of ta'afi, right? So that that creates a, an, a, an additional problem. It's difficult to get rid of the term ta'afi uh, completely. What if I'm saying ta'wanin ta'afi, for example, uh, as an adjective? Um, but no, like I said, I can't, I mean, and, and I, I go through the, the argument in, in great detail in chapter one, in the opening chapter of the book, there is no uh, context that requires this term. Um, I mean, even even Ta'ifiyya, uh, as a referent to a political system, and I already ex- described some of the problems with that in the sense that it's too restrictive, but even that, um, I mean, Ta'ifiyya in, in Lebanon and Iraq has become shorthand for not just the, the apportionment of political office, it's become shorthand for corruption as well. It's become shorthand for inefficiency. Uh, it's come, become shorthand for criminality. Um, which is a very inaccurate way of, of viewing it. I mean, you can have a fear in an institutionally robust setting, as some aspects of Switzerland, do, uh, of Swiss federalism does. Uh, so even then, I don't think the term is needed. There, there, there are, there's a more precise way of describing uh, these contexts.
0: Um, great. So I guess going back to, to Iraq a bit. Um, so how do you see the, the Shia influence um, in Iraq playing out post suleimani and particularly after the COVID-19 uh, outbreak in Iran and its economic distress and sanctions and everything that's happening nowadays. And then relatedly, um, there's a question about um, the rise of the Kurdish nationalist music uh, movement uh, in northern Iraq since 2017. So would you envision sectarianism would be weakened and instead there'd be a rise of Arabism in opposition to Kurdish nationalism in Iraq? Uh, sorry, the, the first question, can you just repeat the beginning of it? Um, how do you see the Shia influence of Iran in Iraq playing out post Soleimani and post uh, COVID nineteen?
1: Um, okay, Iran COVID. Okay, look, uh, I think um, I think Iraqi Shias have long been okay, significant body of Iraqi Shias um, have been, and I'd say the majority of Iraqi Shias have been uh, resentful of Iran's role in Iraq since two thousand and three. Um, even if they didn't see it in the existential terms that a lot of Iraqi Sunnis see it. But there is still that resentment, sometimes for very local reasons. I mean, you talk to people in Najaf, for example, um, unless they're directly benefiting from Iranian, the Iranian presence, uh, there's a lot of resentment just at things like just the sheer number of Iranians in my town or the, uh, the way that Iranians are taking up all the facilities in my town, et cetera. There's this, there are these loc- local sort of uh, resentments as well. Um, more broadly, I think that resentment against Iran, particularly in the last two, three years, the, the manifestations of it that we're seeing um, is as a byproduct of resentment at the political system. The political system is seen as, uh, you know, the chief guarantor of the political system is seen as Iran. The chief beneficiary of the political system is seen as Iran. The most dominant Iraqi political actors are Iran-linked. And so resentment at the uh, Iraqi political system inevitably translates as deepened resentment against uh, against Iran. Um, And I think this has been growing since 2003, even like in 2014 when a lot of uh, Iraqi Shias were grateful for Iran's role in fighting ISIS, it doesn't mean necessarily that they have become card carrying followers or, or loyalists of Iran. There's still that resentment for sometimes very personal, material, local reasons. And that has been growing exponentially since uh, uh, the war against ISIS. And we've seen it in the protest movement. Uh, It's a central trope of the protest movement. And quite frankly, it's difficult to see how you can be against the the political system or wanna bring the political system down without an element of sort of resentment at Iran given Iran's role in Iraq. Uh, Rise of Kurdish nationalist
0: movement leading to an Arab nationalist movement. Is that the question? Um, so I guess it's the, the rise of, uh, it, how would sectarianism be weakened uh, with the rise of Arabism in opposition to Kurdish nationalism in Iraq?
1: I mean, look, Iraqi nationalism would be uh, the, you know, the natural sort of counterbalance or juxtaposing strategy against uh, Kurdish nationalism. And I think this is something that, depending on, of course, depending on, on, on what the content of the respective nationalisms are, uh, if Kurdish nationalism emerges in an anti Iraq way or in an anti Arab way, then you can certainly see a convergence of interest between Sunnis and Sh- between Arab Iraqis in general um, at what will be framed as a threat to Iraqi unity, to the integrity of Iraq, et cetera, et cetera. And we've seen this before. I mean, this is, this is, this is a long running theme in uh, Iraqi history, even before 2003, I mean, particularly in the 80s, 90s, uh, and onwards.
0: Great, and I guess moving to, sorry, we've got a lot of questions here. Uh, going through a lot of a lot of information. How, how long are you allowed to keep me? Uh... So, uh, Well, you know, I've, I've got nothing on my schedule, um, but uh, we just have a couple more questions and that then that I'll, I'll let you... Um, so one was about, I mean, comments on t- contemporary sectarianism or sectarian identity in Turkey. Um, mm-hmm. And then another was, I mean, looking at a context that we haven't discussed is, um, in Pakistan, so why isn't Sunni-Shia identity and representation as much of an issue in Pakistan? Okay, what about Turkey though? Um, Basically some comments on contemporary sectarian identity in Turkey.
1: Uh, Look, these are two contexts that I'm not, uh, I I do not claim expertise in. Uh, The Pakistani uh, context, at least in the 1980s, does come up in the book and I've written about it in the past, Uh, But I don't think it's correct from what little I know, and perhaps the person asking the question uh, can correct me, from what little I know, uh, Sunni Shia representation is an issue in in Pakistan. And there's also a doctrinal issue to sectarian violence from the 1980s in the form of uh, militant groups that were formed explicitly to target Shias, to fight Shias. So that's certainly there. In fact, I can recollect uh, in the 1980s growing up the concept of sectarianism was seen as such a Central Asian, South Asian thing. You know, look at those people that are crazy. This would never happen in the Arab world. This was, I mean, I remember hearing the grown-ups uh, say this on, on several occasions when sectarian violence comes into, uh, makes it to the headlines. It was completely unthinkable. Uh, and here you, you need to remember that the Lebanese civil war did not pit Sunnis and Shias against each other. Um, so the idea of Sunni-Shia violence was something, you know, yeah, the Pakistanis do it, but no way will it happen in, in, in the Middle East, but, you know, lo and behold. Uh, so I think it is an issue in, in Pakistan. As for Turkey, like I said, I am not an expert on Turkey, unfortunately. I wish I was, with, you know, I'll go to Istanbul more often. Um, but yeah, I, I I can't speak to the Turkish case.
0: Um, great, and I guess, I think this is a kind of a good question to, to end on. Um, So throughout your research, did you come across the relation between the politicization of sectarian identities and the decentralization reforms at the subnational level? So thinking about Iraqi multi-ethnic and multi-confessional federalism, but also the deconcentrated administrative structure in Lebanon. So do you think that sectarian identities, once politicized, have modeled those institutional arrangements? Or on the contrary, is it the institutional architecture that has crystallized those identities as as, uh, political ones? And I guess some somewhat related question about kind of whether, um, you know, in in Iraq, the post to the basically the the presence of foreigners in that country kind of triggered this rise in sectarian identity being being uh, Used and instrumentalized. So, is it? I guess, kind of, is it the chicken or the egg? I mean, institutional arrangements creating this, um, these, or uh, strengthening sectarian identities, or or the other, or the other way around. Uh,
1: yeah, I was going to say chicken and egg is the first phrase that came to my mind as well. Uh, but that first question, I think, is excellent, um, and it is a chicken and egg issue. Uh, and I've thought about this uh, quite a lot in the sense that a lot of the ills in, let's say, the Lebanese system. The question did mention Lebanon, did it not? Yes, yes. Yeah, so like in in Lebanon, uh, I often think that, you know, is the problem sectarian identity or is it a problem of weak institutions uh, and under-institutionalization and the like? And again, I mean, this repeats itself in Iraq. So I'm not sure whether decentralization per se uh, leads to sort of sectarian divides or, or raises the relevance of sectarian identity. I think, I think in a context of Wastat and in a context of personalized relationships and in a context where political power is built on per- personal networks, I think those personal identities will have a cascading effect. Because if, you know, if the president is from Tribe X then uh, and he favors people in his, in his tribe and allied tribes and what have you, then tribal tribal identity will gain a, a relevance. And you know my tribal identity might push me closer to the center of power or might add a, a degree of separation. And the same will apply to sectarian identity as well. So there, the problem is not so much sectarian identity as it is the personalization of power, the use of uh, uh, Wastat and, and connections, um, And yeah, if I remember correctly um, on this, I quote Raymond Hennebush quite a lot on this. He's he's done quite a lot of work on this. So for me, it is chicken and egg, but I'm I'm much more sort of uh, uh, inclined to look at the structural elements. And again, you could argue that some some elements of uh, uh, federalism in in Switzerland are muhassassan, but it's in a context of robust uh, political institutions and uh, consolidated democracy and all the rest of it. Uh, foreigners in Iraq. Um, okay, I need to choose my words carefully. The short answer, the short answer is absolutely yes. I mean, you know, it's it's the American invasion of Iraq in 2003. It's the American occupation and their Iraqi interlocutors, let's not forget, who established uh, this insidious system of identity politics and the like. Having said that, I think it's a bit short-sighted to just, Leave it at that. Absolutely, that's the catalyst, that's the trigger, that's the main culprit, no argument there. But I think it's important to look at the pre-2003 legacy. These sect-centric actors that that were empowered in 2003, they were in business for for decades beforehand. More importantly, they came to dominate the uh, political opposition in the 1990s. They were were the dominant force and they were uh, some of uh, the United States chief interlocutors And there was a convergence of views towards Iraq and towards identity politics Iraq between the United States and ethnocentric and sect-centric actors. Uh, There was a convergence of interest there. But it's important to look at what these actors, how did they build these careers? There were grievances, There, there were sort of sectarian issues that were championed by these people for decades. And the example I always use is this feeling justified or not, of the Shia as being excluded from power, as the excluded majority, um, the victimized majority. In the book, I, I, I point to examples from as early as 1920, going through every single decade until 2003. <clears throat> that feeling exists, and there's no point denying that it existed in 2003, and it's exactly what sex-centric actors played on. Um, so I think we also need to be mindful of that. But what, where the system came from, it's the, the uh, American invasion of Iraq, uh, the system that was set up by the occupation and by their Iraqi interlocutors.
0: Thank you so much. We've covered covered a lot from Switzerland to Pakistan um so thank you for that and i will i promise i will stop using the term sectarianism except when i'm talking about your book which is of course called understanding sectarianism sectarianism in quotes because of course of course because it is is as we know now more than more than ever quite a problematic um term so thank you so much for joining us